0: There's something about really trying to get to the complexity and nuance of what the lived experience is like and getting at the truth. That's what I'm trying to get to, for me, with, like, the writer's voice.
1: Coming up on In Contrast, Grace Talusin, Amilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Grace is the 2017 Restless Books Prize Winner for New Immigrant Writing for Nonfiction. Born in the Philippines, she came to the United States at age two. A teacher of writing at Tufts, Telusen is the author of the memoir The Body Papers. Let's begin with a reading by Grace Telusen from The Body Papers.
0: Before my family emigrated from Manila, I lived on a compound with blood relatives. It was our own tiny village enclosed by a wall, planted with broken glass and sharp metal pieces at the top. This kept the danger out, and it also made it difficult for the teenagers and husbands to sneak out at night. Someone always knew your business. You were never alone. Our family lived together, ate together, and prayed together. We were a large family, Catholics like the majority of the country. I was surrounded by dozens of cousins who called me by my nickname, Bubut, or Little Bud, and liked to pick me up and pinch my cheeks since I was so roly-poly. I blame my titas, those aunties who liked a fat child. They fed me constantly, especially camote, sweet potato fried in pork fat, then dredged in sugar, which melted like snow on the hot coins and hardened into a shell. They liked to watch my joy as I ate. At night, the small children glowed white with talcum powder after their baths, and the older cousins told stories until the baby's clean hair dried. Secret histories of the family were shared. The speculation about which of the cousins were not true blood. The story about the Muslim uncle from the South who moved to Manila as a boy when the priests offered to educate him. All he needed to do in exchange was convert to Catholicism. His family held funeral rites for him, and my uncle realized that there were ways to die before you died or the story of how my mother's mother, Mama Lola, was haunted by the faint sound of a crying baby, perhaps the unborn soul of her last miscarriage, and how she roamed the ground some nights trying to find her child.
1: Grace Talusan, it's a pleasure to have you here in In Contrast.
0: Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I want to delve
1: right into your new book, The Body Papers, a memoir, by asking you first about the duality that you feel, Filipino and American. Could you explain to me, to our audience, the type of relationship you have with these two countries? Where do you feel closest? What do you feel throughout each of them?
0: Well, in some ways, I can describe it through the ways I feel growing up and being in my house. So when I was growing up in the small town in Massachusetts, I felt like my home was like the Philippines. My parents were speaking in Tagalog and in English to us, but in Tagalog to each other, that was the language of home. And of course, we had rice every day and Filipino food, which is just food. But then when I stepped outside of my family's home and I went to school or to soccer or to band or to the other activities I did, I was operating under different cultural norms and rules, and I changed. Like, I was sort of a different person at home, and then I had to be really attentive and pay attention to how people interacted, the kinds of foods people ate, what we talked about. Things were slightly different when I stepped out of the door. I was almost like a different version of myself. So I've been constantly navigating identity and ways that I should be in the world, and one felt distinctly Filipino, and one did feel American. Later on, when I visited the Philippines, very briefly, I would encounter myself again or, like, be really aware of my identity, because then all of a sudden I was an American Filipino returning to the Philippines, which also felt like a distinct identity as well. When I lived in the Philippines for about six months in 2015, I wanted to blend in, and I tried to learn the language, and as soon as I would get in a cab or meet people, I would try to greet people in Tagalog, but pretty immediately, people read me and heard me as an American. And our conversations would be in English from there. And there'd be a lot of questions about what America was like and what it meant for me to be a Filipino living in America. So there's lots of ways that my identity as a Filipino and an American has been like refracted. and. I pay attention to it, and it's been brought to my attention.
1: And in this duality, the private in the public or the domestic in the street, like, does it create anxiety in whatever center is there in you that sometimes you would wish would disappear? Or is this an asset to have more than oneself?
0: I think for me being a writer, it's been an asset, totally, because it means that I have this feeling of observing, like being in the world, but also constantly observing the world at the same time. And I think more and more folks have this experience because they're constantly negotiating their multiple identities, like their Instagram personality versus their Twitter personality versus Facebook. So I think more and more people have that experience because they're negotiating audiences. But I think for me as a writer, being aware and attentive to norms, mannerisms, gestures, what people say, being aware when I've said something that doesn't seem like that is accepted or that is the norm, it's made me constantly aware of myself and observant. It does cause a level of anxiety to be that way. And to watch how I am in a room, it makes me a little bit more reserved and guarded until I can feel relaxed among people. But I am always watching, like, what is the norm of this meeting or this room or these people or this classroom, for example? And for me as a teacher, I've been able to try to create a culture or to influence a culture in a classroom so that I try to create my own norms in my classrooms.
1: You have been writing for some time, for quite a long time, though this is your very first book, The Body Papers. So I wonder if as we enter the book together and I ask you a bunch of things about different sections and about different aspects of it, We could start by you reflecting on how you became a writer. It's not only seeing the book published, but finding the word as an instrument to become yourself.
0: Yeah. When I was doing research for the book and looking for photographs, some of the photographs I came across was me at age two and three and four already pretending to be a writer, even before I could read or write. There's photos of me, like, writing a book and reading books and magazines. And I think it's an identity I've always had and wanted. I wasn't necessarily public about it or felt like I could be public about it. And I've had different relationships to whether I could call myself a writer for a long time. And I think the book is very recent in my writing life. And I have to say that being able to say that I'm about to publish a book has made me feel more authoritative and legitimate and credible to call myself a writer, even though I've been writing for many, many years now and publishing pieces here and there. But there is something for me about having a book and being able to like see a book on a shelf in a library in a bookstore as an object. It's very significant to me and profound to be able to have that experience but I do think that I've been preparing and thinking of myself as a writer and studying and practicing for quite a long time. And one of the misconceptions I had was that I had to make writing my living, and that would be the only way to be a writer. But as I started to read more folks and read about writers' lives, I can see that writers had all kinds of lives. They make their living as physicians or in all other kinds of fields. It's very rare. I do know people who make their living as a writer, but it's not. Like, very common to just have that and be it.
1: At the same time, there must be something, while exciting, I guess, frightening in seeing that, all right, this is it. This is what you are on the page in a book. When seeing it in galleys, when seeing the actual book, do you get the sense of, now this is me and I have to live up or I have to connect with this side what I have agreed to make public of myself?
0: Yes, I'm going through this experience right now because I am starting to do interviews, and folks are reviewing the book, and I'm talking to folks who have read the book, and it's a new experience for me. In writing the work that became The Body Papers, I wrote it in a very solitary way, and I never actually believed I could publish a book, and I just thought I was writing to myself. Like, I have a connection with myself, and I'm writing these things to myself, So now to have this other experience which takes it out of the intimate and the private to have it be a public experience, that's a new experience. And is it scary? I guess I asked my family if they wanted to read The Galley and they wanted to wait till it was the finished book. So I haven't had that experience yet of hearing what they have to say. My husband only recently read it as a whole book. So I know that part of what I'm going to be dealing with in the next few months as the book is published is negotiating people's reactions and experiences. And in some ways that's fair. It's like I've had my experience and the things that I want to express and if folks do read it, they will have their reactions and may want to share them. And so I'm anticipating that. And hopefully it hits people in the right way and and they can see the feeling and the intent that I have behind it and what I am trying to do with writing these stories, which are very intimate personal stories, and what it means to decide to publish them. Because that is another Step is to decide to share them and make them public. Perhaps
1: the central theme, at least in my perspective, is the pain that you have undergone in a number of different ways by means of a number of different tests, if we could describe them, or challenges being an immigrant without documents suffering sexual abuse in the family and having to keep a secret when this is something that might have occurred in other moments in the family history, and you take the courage of speaking out your own family's history with illness and how that illness affects you. There's something almost biblical in the book, biblical in the sense of the individual having to explore and contain the suffering and the courage that comes in. I want to go into these different aspects. You talk in the book about that very difficult series of episodes, which are about sex molestation in the family from your grandfather.
0: What pushed you to speak out? When I was doing the research for the book, I also came across writing from very early on. I've been writing about it in my diaries I think I even turned in some school assignments where I mentioned it, what happened to me. And so I've wanted to talk about it and write about it for a long time. But that desire is probably met with a even stronger knowledge that I shouldn't talk about it. This is something that we keep in the family, or this is not polite. We don't talk about these things. But I realized that's much more damaging to me, but also to other folks who may be dealing with this, if we don't talk about it. I would have saved myself a lot of suffering if I even knew what to call it. Like I didn't even have words. I didn't know what was happening to me because no one had described it to me and I hadn't seen it described in culture. And it took things like watching sitcom TV, having like special episodes of different TV shows when I was maybe like 10 or 11 or so to say like, oh, that's what that is that I'm going through. Someone else is going through it too on TV. Now I have a name for it. There's a definition of it. There's an experience that I can name. And then I just started to become more awake. And now that I had a name for what it was called, molestation, sexual abuse, assault, I could look things up. And at that time we didn't have the internet, so I'd look things up in the library. And then I found books about this very thing And all of that started to give me an arsenal and a way to talk about what was happening and to say, oh, my goodness, I recognize not only what's happening to me, but the symptoms. Like, I'm already experiencing these symptoms that these researchers and psychologists are talking about. And one of the symptoms that haunted me the most was that sometimes girls who have been abused end up becoming a mother to children who become abused. I'm maybe not saying it correctly, but there was something about the intergenerational nature of the trauma that it could be extended to the next generation that really scared me. And I said, no, 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 like it stops with me, at least in my line. I'm not going to let this happen to like another generation, whatever I could control. So that's why I started to talk about it, at least in my family, and start to get help and then to write about it some. But I was also in graduate school and writing about it at a time when there seemed to be a lot of books published about the issue. And in some ways, there felt like this almost backlash. It's like so written about now, like don't write about it. And so I actually stayed away from it as a topic for a while. That was probably better because I needed to do some work myself and do some healing before I could feel like comfortable going out and talking about it publicly. But I do feel very strongly about being able to talk about it publicly and be strong and say like, many, many people go through this. It's actually very common and you can get through it, and you can thrive and have a life. It does mean doing some work, probably, to support you and to try to address some of the injuries that have occurred, but I do feel really strongly.
1: The fact that you're writing about it and that you are an immigrant, if anything, that adds a layer to it or puts it in a slightly different category or under a different light. Immigrant communities are themselves vulnerable, and then calling attention to this type of, of plight might make them even more vulnerable. So this is the story of the pain that sexual abuse has shaped in a member of a Filipino family that speaks out. In what sense is this aspect of the immigrant in you connecting it with finally speaking out significant?
0: Well, there is some pressure, I felt. It was unspoken pressure, but to be a good immigrant. And that meant succeeding in metrics that we think of as success, like having a job and having some kind of status and being a good member of society and knowing that there's few of us represented and we have to make a good impression. What we do as immigrants might impact other immigrant communities, not only Filipino immigrant communities, but other immigrant communities. So I've always felt a lot of pressure to try to be good. And it took me a while to understand that me talking about what happened to me and this pain, which happens in many families, could be part of being good, not just conforming and saying, like, everything's fine and, look, I vote and I do all the right things I'm supposed to do as a civic member of society, but to also step it up and say, well, we have pain and troubles and problems too, and it's okay for us to talk about it. And that is part of us being part of society is, like, being able to be honest about how our lives really are. And sometimes that includes things that are incredibly painful and things that people feel ashamed about and illnesses and things in the family that we don't talk about in polite community.
1: Do you feel that there might be a backlash of sorts or a reaction? Here is a successful Filipina who is the model of a good immigrant who has a wonderful job, is a terrific teacher, writes publicly has become a figure and is speaking about this aspects that will draw a negative light on the Filipino community itself
0: I did think about that and which is probably why it's taken me so long to publish about it as i said i've been writing about this probably since it was even happening to me when i was a teenager But this is the first time I'm really publishing about it in nonfiction. So it took me many decades. I've thought about this issue a lot. There is very little representation of Filipino immigrants, Filipino Americans in mainstream pop culture, in literature, in music. There are some, but there's not that many. And so I was very aware of the kind of pressure that that would put on any representation that I put out there. I don't purport to represent the community. I'm just representing myself and my family. I understand that there's ways that I could be read. So I do want to be careful of that. You know, if we want to get past, like, stereotypes and trite representations of folks, that means including the complexity of who people are. And this includes writing about what my grandfather includes, the complexity of who he is. And that is, you know, the fact that he did this to me is part of who he is. And there is the good version of stories about the things that I could tell about him, that he worked hard, that even though he had a third-grade education, he did what he could to educate all of his children. Most of his children went to college and became professionals. All of that stuff. Like, all of that stuff is still true, and yet he did something that has devastated my life and that it has taken me, like, a lot of energy and time in my life to try to recover All of those exist in the same person, and I think that that exists probably in a lot of people. We have dualities to us, and it's important to me in my work as a writer and as a teacher to get at the truth of things, to get at humanity, and this is part of humanity that this exists. Would you contemplate,
1: if there was an offer, for the book to be translated to Tagalog, to be available in the Philippines, and to engage a conversation in Filipino culture, not at the immigrant culture alone, but the archipelago culture about all this.
0: Yes, I would love that. I would absolutely love it. The more people who could read this, the better. And especially in the Philippines, I would really love that. I believe the statistic is 80% of folks in the Philippines can read and speak English. So you might not even need to translate the work in Tagalog or Filipino languages, although I think that's wonderful to have the book be available in, in different languages. I think this is an issue that we find in many different cultures, and it's one of those things that can happen in a family that should be unearthed and talked about. And if my book provides a small opening for a family to talk about it or for a reader who might have known someone with this experience or who's going through this experience— to see themselves reflected and talk about it, great. That's what I would love to have, to create an opening. Other people have made those openings for me. I've seen myself reflected in literature and film and music, and I felt grateful for that, and I would love to be able to do that for other people.
1: It seems that in the way you describe it and in reading the book, that act and art of writing was also therapeutic. Being finally able, after all these decades, to find the right lexicon and put it on the page and being able to show it to other people was liberating, a form of expiation, so to speak. I wonder if you could help me see the difference between therapy and literature. What is good literature and what is simply therapeutic writing?
0: Yes, I think that's a really important distinction. I do engage in therapy as a form of self-care Probably for decades now, off and on, I've had a therapist engaged in the process of therapy, which is distinct from the process of writing, how I engage in writing, even though there's similarities. There's a storytelling that's going on. There's a self that is constantly changing and that you're in relationship to and that you're paying attention to. So there's ways that there's similarities. But what happens in that therapeutic space is that the audience is ultimately just myself and the therapist is reflecting things back to me and helping me change and things like that. But what happens with writing and literature, especially if I'm publishing a book, is that I'm very aware of an audience and that the ultimate audience then is not me anymore, but I'm thinking about the reader and what might the reader need, what might the reader want, or... What can the reader get out of this situation? So the shift is different. And that, to me, is the difference between therapy and therapeutic writing, is this thinking about somebody else and thinking about, in this case, the reader. But yes, as an act, it's therapeutic for me, absolutely, to have gone through this process in the past few years of editing and revising the book. And every single step of the way of getting the galley, getting the cover, seeing the page proofs, all of those things have been incredibly therapeutic for me. They're hard sometimes, and they're shocking. Like when I saw the book in Page Proofs, there was something shocking. Like every step that we go as we get closer, it's very profound to me because I really just didn't think there would be a space in the culture for me and for my book. I just hadn't seen it before. Why not? I've tried. I've knocked on this door a few times, and I've heard various things like, oh, books like this don't sell, essay collections don't sell, just all kinds of things. And I thought, okay, I guess this isn't the kind of book that sells, so I'm going to still write what I write. I'm not going to jump on like the vampire bandwagon or something and write about that. I first write for myself. Yeah. But I just felt really discouraged until I really just didn't think there was a place for me. And when I saw the listing for this prize, I thought, "Oh, that's perfect. Like this is a press that's interested in innovative work and that's interested in supporting immigrant writers and has a commitment to that. But I felt pretty left out of the publishing industry.
1: You talk about the reader, writing for the reader. In a country of 325 million people, and that's only the United States, your book is available in other parts of the world. The reader must be, in your mind, an amorphous creature. Who is this reader? As the country is shifting into a more diverse, in in the eyes of some, This creates discomfort.
0: Is the readership, you think, also changing? I hope the readership is becoming more interested and curious about immigrants and about women and about lives of girls and also about other things in the book around what it means to have genetic foreknowledge about diseases. I hope the reader's interested in all of those things. I think the reader is another version of me. And it's some like pretend self that I have that I've constructed around who a reader is. And I know that sometimes I'm wrong. Recently, a cousin of mine, he is terminally ill, and he requested a galley. And so I didn't know why he would be so interested. He's maybe in his 60s. And I just thought, okay, he was definitely not the reader that I thought of for this book. And I gave him the galley, and he read it twice already. He loves it. And I was really actually very surprised. I didn't think it would touch him so much. He was the last person I would think of who would be interested in this book. I kind of thought of my nieces coming of age and being 18 or in their 20s. I thought of them. But actually, I think it's reaching other people that I didn't think of. So my reader in my head works for me to write the book. But I think it's a more expanded notion that I'm not even aware of.
1: The book is called The Body Papers, and it is about papers, all sorts of documents, medical and legal and others that make you or have shaped who you are. But the other part of the title, the body part, is all the more essential. It is very much about the female body and how the female body, the female body of an immigrant, the female body of a Filipino immigrant has changed, mutated, has suffered the pains, has reflected the suffering of that journey. You talked about the DNA and about genetic mutations and about foregrounding and seeing into illnesses that have been part of your family and yourself going through surgical operations in order to extricate certain parts of your body in order to be able to continue being yourself. Talk to me about that aspect of the book, the female body of the immigrant. Sure.
0: Well, I'm aware ever since I came to this country of being red and being red as different or Asian or Chinese even. I mean, all different ways that people have responded to me and read me and read my body—not only racially, but also we communicate gender expression and sexual orientation and class—and like, there's so many ways that we're constantly being read, and this impacts how my experience in the world. For example, when I started dating in high school and in then in college, I happened to have boyfriends who were in ROTC and in the military and they had haircuts because they had to get these haircuts, and it indicated their body was red, as being in the military. And it meant something that me as a Filipina, a Filipino-American, would be walking next to them and their girlfriend, and I started to be aware of that too. Like, even though I've grown up mostly here, there was ways that I was being seen as, like, This Filipina girlfriend of a U.S. military person, which means something different, I think, in the Philippines when we had bases in the Philippines, which meant something about sex work, actually. And so, I don't know, I'd just been aware of that, of myself being read racially and ethnically in that way and feeling uncomfortable. I felt like it was unfair to be read that way when I just wanted to be out hanging out with my boyfriend at the time and to still carry some of those notions with me felt uncomfortable. But in terms of, like, the genetic diagnosis, that's something that people can't read on me. That's something that I read in a test result and then had to take action for. But I'm clothed all the time, and so even in a bathing suit, you wouldn't be able to tell that I had these surgeries. But I did. I've got my ovaries removed, and I got a double mastectomy, which, going through the process of deciding if I would get these body parts that we associate with being female and and a woman— if I was going to get those removed, it was really hard for me to decide that. And I had these fears like, what did it mean for me to lose body parts that signify femaleness? And the ovaries, I mean, that has like a physiological impact. It means that I would go into menopause unless I took hormones. And even with that, it's a very, very small amount compared to what I would be making if I did not get my ovaries removed. But what's my choice? Am I going to? wait around and see if I get cancer. It was a huge likelihood that I would get it. All the medical advice is telling me to get the treatment. I tried to find other solutions besides surgery, and I talked to experts, and I couldn't find any other solutions. And this was the only solution at this time. My sister had breast cancer. I've had family members with ovarian cancer. It seems pretty awful to have to go through that. And why wait and put myself and my family through that kind of pain and suffering, and also uncertainty. Once you have cancer, like, there's always this fear lurking that it may come back. So I'm in the first generation of people in my family that can prevent cancer. And why wouldn't I take those steps if I had that opportunity? Mm -hmm.
1: And in this journey of medical decisions, as you described it, your femininity was transformed, and that left you with a different type of identity in public as well?
0: At first, it did. Mm-hmm. I'm so used to it now. It's been maybe about 10 years since I had the surgeries, so I've had time to become used to it. But I was afraid at first to like change in front of people and to have them see that I had what is called breast mounds rather than breasts. It was more about being different. Like I didn't want to scare them, Like as if my body, because it was altered, would scare people because it didn't look normal. So there are ways that that underscored, I guess, earlier injuries or feelings that I had about being different. It just like heightened it. So I didn't want to change in front of folks and let the gym or have someone like at a massage or something have someone see that my body was different and didn't look like other bodies.
1: You talked earlier in our conversation about the good immigrant and you yourself have been without documents or were without documents. You talk about it in the book. That was also an issue of legitimacy or of affirmation and confirmation in the place to which you had arrived, the United States. Reflect at a moment when we are having a very deep, transformative, and sometimes very perplexing national conversation on who is and isn't part of this country and what do papers mean. And your memoir deals with that directly. Reflect on what it means to have and not have papers the way you have reflected on what it means to have and not have other parts of you?
0: Sure. Well, papers are, they have real consequences. And I have traveled with a Philippine passport before, and I've traveled with a U.S. passport. Even that, you know, administrative kind of transaction that happens at the border, that felt profoundly different when I had a Philippine passport entering the United States and when I had a U.S. passport. Some of the things that people say, like when I would come into the country with my U.S. passport and they would say, welcome home, that is like, to me, like almost would make me want to cry when I would hear that because I would hear this border agent making me feel like as if I'm part of this country and I did have legitimacy by saying, welcome home. And there were ways that when I was traveling with a Philippine passport, I just felt like more suspicious or something. There's a different line that I should go into. There's a little bit of a different paperwork, different line of questioning. The U.S. has been my home since I was two years old. I didn't even know I was undocumented until I was a teenager. So I was going along with the idea that I belonged here. But then when I was a teenager, I realized, oh, oh, no, like I don't have some rights. There are ways that I'm not protected, that in a way that a U.S. citizen would be protected. I can't vote. There's all these ways that I couldn't fully participate in the society without that documentation. So it's very important to have it. I have students who are undocumented, and I feel for them a lot. It's very uncertain what their future will be and what rights they have, and will they be able to work in this country Will they be removed or deported? I mean, there's all these questions. And I remember, luckily, I only had to live with those questions for maybe about five to seven years. And then things got straightened out. But I didn't fully feel comfortable until I had my U.S. passport and I had my naturalization papers that I felt like I could make a claim and say that I am really part of this country, even though it's just paperwork on some level, it's incredibly meaningful, important paperwork that changed how welcome I felt and whether I felt comfortable to speak up and to complain or to raise my voice if I needed to, to ask for something. There's ways I didn't feel that was possible earlier. I, myself
1: being also an immigrant, Grace, my children often make fun of the way I can't come up with a preposition or mispronounce a word, and they say, laughingly but lovingly, that I see the world as an immigrant. And that has to do with a certain, I don't know, a certain take or a certain way to embrace it. In what way is your immigrant viewpoint the lens through which you see this world?
0: I think being an immigrant is constantly, for me, being like a writer, being an observer, slightly being on the outsides of things. I wasn't born here. I knew that There were things that I couldn't do and couldn't have because I was not born here. I didn't have the right to run for president, for example. Not that I would want to. I mean, I knew that pretty early on. I learned that in a history class or in elementary school. That was one of my first realizations, like, oh, there's things that I can't do because I don't have the right to do them because I wasn't born here. So having that experience of not having the right to do things, that is a very integral part of my life. I'm aware of it. Some of it has to do with being an immigrant. Some of it has to do with my racial, ethnic, social, economic identity. I'm constantly aware of things that I can't do or don't have access to. I get around them. I think that's another aspect of being an immigrant is being incredibly innovative and trying to find new ways to do things and to get the things that you want and get access to, like, the so-called American Dream and our version of the American Dream as much as possible. You know, I think of my parents, and they decided to come here and to make a new life. And they didn't grow up here, so they had to learn the norms. My father speaks with an accent, and he had to learn how to be understood and respected so that people didn't dismiss him because of his accent and dismiss him because he looks foreign, even though he's been here longer than he's been in the Philippines. So it's another experience of being an outsider, I guess, being an immigrant.
1: You mentioned it earlier that there is very little space, very little room in the American bookshelf for Filipino literature. And I wonder why there's space for literatures that are coming from other parts of the world. I'm thinking Latin America or certain parts of Asia or Russia or Eastern Europe. Why is the bookshelf of Filipino writing so reduced in this country? Is it lack of interest? Is it lack of output? Is it an issue of not so much linguistic but cultural translation, racism, apathy?
0: I've been part of a book club for over 10 years, Boston Filipino American Book Club, and the whole goal of that was to find Filipino American books by living Filipino-American writers and read them. In the first few years that we were doing this, we were getting books that maybe were two years ago, three years ago, 30 years ago. We did read Carlos Bullis on America's in the Heart and other work like that. And then somewhere around five years ago, we started to see that there was more and more output. Even though there's still not as much as other ethnic groups and immigrant groups in this country, there's starting to be more room. My book is part of that. I've seen other books. I have books right now that I have stacked up that I can't wait to read, Gina Apostol's Insorecto and America is Not the Heart by um, Elaine Castillo. There's starting to be a stack of books every year, and that's very exciting to me to see that there's more. I think we've always been writing. We've tried to find other ways to publish our work if we couldn't publish it in mainstream publishing. Also, at the same time, if it doesn't seem like the mainstream publishing is that interested in us, then we maybe some of us didn't finish our books or even try to submit them or anything because it just didn't seem like that was possible. But I do see more and more interest lately.
1: And do you see interest, and my ignorance is absolute in this realm, is there interest in the Philippines for the literature that Filipino immigrants produce in the United States and in other Diasporas?
0: I think so. I don't know that world very well, but I do know a few friends here in the United States. Bino Reaulio is one who wrote The Umbrella Country maybe about 15 or 20 years ago. And his book, I think, has been adopted in classrooms in the Philippines. So there is, I think, a desire to stay connected to the Filipino diaspora through literature, and that includes some of us who've been publishing outside of the country. And of course, there's an incredibly vibrant scene in Filipino literature in the Philippines.
1: We're coming to the end of our conversation, which I enjoyed tremendously. And I have one more thought, and that goes back to the title of your memoir, The Body Papers. And we talked about the paper side and the body side. But now bringing the two together, it seems to me that metaphorically, your body is made of paper, the paper that is all these words that you have written. You were describing it as a source of enormous pride. But then what next? Where does one go from here?
0: These stories that I've held on to and thought about for many, many years, and it feels wonderful to contain them in between the cover, of the beautiful green cover that we're going to have for this book. There's something about containing those experiences in an object that feels really great to have that, have the experience be contained. Of course, me as my body in my life, I continue to go on and the themes that are brought up in the book, I continue to live with, and they reverberate for me in various ways. And I will bring the things that I've learned and thought about in the book to other projects, of course. I think the next thing I'm going to work on is a novel, and it probably has nothing to do with my family and is mostly imagined. And that's what I'm going to work on next. But I look forward to hopefully several years of having conversations with folks who've read the book and have something that they want to share or talk about that the book has inspired in them or brought up or caused them to remember.
1: Did you ever imagine telling your own story in fictional form instead of nonfiction in the form of a memoir, doing it as a novel?
0: I did. I actually wrote my MFA thesis, is a loosely based autobiographical novel, on some of the same material that I've published in the memoir. Yes. And sometimes I fantasize about doing a companion novel to the memoir, actually.
1: But nonfiction ended up being more the root.
0: I came to nonfiction accidentally. I can't remember which came first, the story about my father, my father's noose, or the essay about my niece and having eye cancer. But both of those pieces came out of me out of distress. And I just sat and wrote them. And of course, I edited them a little bit before I published them. But they just almost came out in one piece. And I just felt the urge to write about it and publish it And that's how I started writing nonfiction is I wrote those pieces, published them almost immediately. And then I thought, oh, nonfiction is another way that I can express these stories that I have with me. It's possible. But I didn't think it was possible for a long time because I thought I had to have the veil of fiction constantly. I didn't Mm. think it was okay to talk about these directly.
1: How would you describe, how would you define the writer's voice?
0: In general, the writer's voice? The writer's voice is a true voice and i see the writer's voice or the true voice expressed in other art forms too if i see a beautiful dance or listen to music it's something about truth being totally stripped away raw truth we're not going to varnish it we're not going to be polite we're not going to pretend everything is okay when it's not okay there's something about really trying to get to the complexity and nuance of what the lived experience is like and getting at the truth. That's what I'm trying to get to, for me, with, like, the writer's voice. But there's a way that it rings true, true.
1: It's been an honor to have you in the show. Grace DeLuzon, thank you very much for coming.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: An addict who finally takes a stand against addiction. A spouse who stands up to violence. A family member who, after years of not talking to his loved ones, suddenly emerges with a smile. An activist who speaks out against corruption. Courage brings us out of ourselves. But it isn't automatic. For it to take place, it requires grip and a desire to find a new course of events. Where exactly does courage come from? Are we born courageous? Or is there a moment in life when all of a sudden we decide to be brave? No matter how much I try, it is hard to put in words what exactly courage is. The act of defying the odds? Doing something that frightens us? Renouncing the stasis that is a feature of life? Being ready to say no? Courage isn't measurable. Small acts of courage are as important as big ones. Courage can be learned. It can pass from one person to another. Of course, there is no school in which to train to be courageous, unless, of course, we think of life itself as a school in which all of us are students. Courage is a moral value. It establishes that a life lived with dignity, helping others through example, is the best lesson. I admire Grace Talusin. As an immigrant, for years she was in search of her place in the world, until she found writing. It took her a long time to find her writing voice. That voice is about making sure immigrants aren't ostracized because they come from somewhere else and about articulating the suffering she has gone through as a woman after years of illness and violence. Putting pain into words is an act of courage. In that sense, courage is restorative. It makes us become complete. It renews us. It redefines us. It takes courage to be oneself. On the next In Contrast. Art doesn't have the answers. Art cannot propose an alternative world. But art can bring to the table a lot of issues and can do it in a very open-minded way in which a new generations can pick up whatever they want to move it forward. Photographer and human rights advocate Marcelo Brodsky. On the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with author Min Jin Lee... Ruth Osecki, and Arshia Sattar, visit our website at nepr.net. Let us know what you think about In Contrast, review us on Apple Podcasts, or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our intern is Delaina Hatgo. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.